Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. In this episode, we talk with electrical engineer Dave Vandenbot about digital devices and how one might go about advancing a career in digital design. And watch out for the alphabet soup in this episode. We've got TTLs and EMIs, PWMs and VIAs, SPIs and UARTs, FIRs, and of course, BGAs. The Engineering Commons explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of field or industry. Join Adam, Brian, Carmen, and Jeff as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 103, Ones and Zeros, March 3rd, 2016. So, Brian... Is the old analog saying true? Can any idiot really do digital work because you only have to count to one? Uh, you just make it fast enough and then it gets complicated. Well, I mean, you, what are you going to do? Count to two, three, four? <laughs> it's only binary. You got to count to one at least 32 times in order to be interesting in my book. <laughs> Simultaneously, that is. <sighs> so so does your work line of work see a pretty good mix of analog and digital stuff? Or are you more of a systems guy? No, uh, I think for the past eight or nine years or so, I've done pretty much uh, a fairly decent mix of analog and, and digital work. Uh, uh, mostly, you know, signal acquisition and hardening communication circuits, which is all digital. But as soon as you as soon as you put it in the domain when you're trying to blast it with lightning or high-frequency RF, it becomes an analog game as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. Things get crazy when you start shooting lightning at things. Yeah. And it's, you know, still to this day, sensing voltages and and uh, moving current around. Yeah, layout in general. Now, so is there a frequency these days where digital just evaporates and it becomes an analog problem? Six, but I don't remember the units. <laughs> <laughs> So the gigahertz stuff I've been doing recently has been just an ex- exercise in trying to keep the traces small enough such that I don't have to worry about it, but you still have to worry about it. So uh, I think once you're up in that range, it's basically as much an analog problem as it is a digital problem. And in my neck of the woods too, working for a small company, if we end up in a true signal integrity problem, it's... We don't even own the equipment necessary to solve it. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think I'm trying to remember which podcast it was, if it was embedded or the amp hour or spark gap, someone just had an episode on digital and signal integrity. And I think it was about a hundred megahertz or so. The cutoff was where you have to really start worrying about it. It's, it's a function of the rising edge of your signals and the length over which you're transmitting that. Uh, as soon as the propagation uh, delay of your signal starts approaching the uh, uh, rising edge and length you start to get into, or I guess divisible numbers of multiples of multiples of the inverse I forget mm-hmm. you run into problems interesting yeah well I mean we could sit around speculating all night or we could we could get to our guest who probably knows a little bit more than we do <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah and that's that's the first question he has to answer <laughs> <laughs> diving right in the deep end <laughs> 
So please validate all my work for the past year. <laughs> make me feel like not a pretend engineer. Exactly. Yes. So our guest for tonight is an electrical engineer who specializes in FPGA and digital design. His name is Dr. Dave Vandenbott. Dave runs his own design firm, Excess, out of Raleigh, North Carolina, after having previously worked in uh, Bell Labs and as a professor as well, like Jeff, someone you may know. <laughs> Dave's also <laughs> appeared on the Amp Hour twice, uh, one of which being the infamous butt crack episode. So, Dave, welcome to the Engineering Commons, and thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having me, Carmen, and uh, the rest of you guys. Uh, thanks for offering me the chance to uh, make a fool out of myself for the third time. Oh, you're very welcome. <laughs> you did read in the fine print that this doesn't pay, though, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's that's part of what makes me a fool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we want to keep this ludicrous podcasting money all to ourselves. <laughs> All, all negative dollars it's brought in. The big bucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how you doing tonight, Dave? What got you into engineering? We'll, we'll lob you up with a softball one. You don't have to break out the math yet. Yeah, well, I what got me interested in engineering? I figured out that my singing career was just never going to take off. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you should have tried rap. <laughs> you had a voice for silent film? Yeah, it's, <laughs> exactly. But... Uh, you know, when I was in high school, I really didn't know what engineering was. I thought, you know, I might go to college and be a liberal arts major or something like that, and uh, or, or you know, maybe uh, maybe in physics or something like that. But uh, in uh, in the latter part of high school, I, I got into uh, a shop class in uh, in um, electronics, and uh, that was pretty interesting to me. And I kind of followed it, followed it from there when I went to the university to uh, be an electrical engineer instead of a physicist. And over the years, I was in uh, engineering school. I saw I saw a number of people transfer from the physics department over into the engineering department because you know for the same reasons they 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 wanted to apply things more than they wanted to uh, try to theoretically uh, look at the basic underpinnings of the of reality, and they just wanted to build things. So that's really really kind of how it gets into. existential real fast, <laughs> especially nowadays. Yeah. I mean, a lot of theories we can't even test anymore in, st- in string theory. So this is a question of whether they're even si- science anymore. Oh yeah, just abstracts all out, and you can change numbers, and yep. you're in a whole different universe. Yep. Well, yeah, but the answer is it depends. <laughs> <laughs> now, unlike a lot of our guests, though, I've actually met you in person a few times, and uh, I, th- I think I could see you with a beret, you know, at a cafe discussing poetry or books. Mm. You know, I think you might have missed your calling. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm. I am the kind of guy that would wear a beret. <laughs> <laughs> that would. Have, can you say? Can you say the words? Would you like fries with that? Ooh, I have, come on now. I have said to start that. Okay. Shot so early. We're only eight minutes of recording. Fired. Okay, I'll admit I did that for like a year. <laughs> Flip burgers or liberal arts? <laughs> I have to ask if you'd like fries with that. Oh, okay. Well, I, I actually worked for Brick Mason when I was in college, so I didn't even get the high class McDonald's jobs. Mm, I sold tuxedos. As <laughs> luxurious as you think it would be. Super high class. <laughs> I worked at Best Buy Ooh. and painted mm. houses. Ooh. Wow. And I, I worked in the movie theater. Lucky. Yes. It was the summer the Star Wars came out. Ooh. The original. Ooh. Uh, what, the the episode one? Well, four. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the Star Wars. <laughs> right. So you, you got interested, Dave, in uh, engineering back in high school and uh, decided to 
you know, jumping right. in college. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. How'd you, how'd you decide on digital design? Did you do it, uh, you know, through your classwork or co-op or after time in some industry? Oh, um, well, you got to remember when I was in, in university, uh, undergraduate, uh, digital really was only just starting to get going. Um, uh, and, you know, a lot of my training was in analog electronics and, and electromagnetics and, and power and things like that. And we had a digital design course and, um, the other instructors, when you were in their classes would say, you know, this is, you know, electromagnetics. This is not at all like what those digital dingbats do. And that, <laughs> that was, you know, that was always how they referred to as digital dingbats. And, uh, in my last year in, in college, I, I got involved in, uh, you know, the digital design course and it went over the standards, you know, like, uh, logic minimization, Carnot maps, blah, blah, blah. And toward the end there, I got a little bit into microcontroller programming with the, uh, MC6800. And to show you just how little I understood about what was going on at that time is at the very, we were programming in machine language, you know, just translate all the things and all the instructions into the hexadecimal codes and, and type them into the machine's memory and let it run. At the end, we got a chance to use an assembler and the assembler ran on the mainframe. So we had to take an assembler program, run it through the mainframe, get the assembly code out of it and then use that. And, uh, so everybody had the same assembly program and, and we were all just pushing the same set of, of cards through the, through the card reader for the mainframe. <laughs> and, and the, and the code just spit out at the end. And I said, and I said, what the hell just happened? And they, and, and my friends said, don't worry about it. Just type those codes in and that's going to run on your, on, on the 6800 and you'll be fine. So I didn't just even know no what the it. assembler was doing. And, uh, so I didn't get involved in microcontrollers and, and, and digital logic, uh, really until I, I got into my first job at Bell Labs. And, uh, my first year there, I was really mainly analog. And, uh, but I got interested in the, uh, they had a trash 80 computer in the lab and they had a, they eventually had an Apple II there. And, and you know, these were like brand, these are brand new at the time. Yeah. Cutting edge things. They were. They were, you know, yeah, I mean, these weren't looked upon as being toys. These were like, you know, this was real equipment. Uh, but, uh, I was interested in programming those and learning how to, how to write programs and basic programs and stuff like that. Because, you know, in school, everything had been, uh, punch cards and, and these were not definitely punch cards and they were a lot more interesting with what you could do. And about a year into my job there, we got a, a project to uh, design a, um, essentially, uh, like a terminal, you know, like, um, a terminal with a modem that was built into it that you could take into your home and you could hook it up to the phone line and it would communicate with an offsite mainframe or whatever. Um, but it was portable. And one of the things they had inside of it was a Motorola 6801 microcontroller. And one of my friends was doing the digital logic for the thing. Uh, another one of my friends was, was doing the uh, modem chip for the thing. And my boss came around and said, well, you can do the microcontroller for this. You can do the microcontroller programming. <laughs> and I said, okay. And, uh, and so I started doing microcontroller programming. And as I got into it more and more, I, you know, I figured out more and more about what was going on with the 6801. And I said, you know, some of the things these other guys are working on, you know, we can do it in the 6801 and we can just eliminate those things entirely. 
And you know, <laughs> just get so rid I, of my friends. So, I don't need them. So I took I, I, I took my friend's modem chip and I, I just pretty much decimated it. It, it ended up being like a, a couple of you know low pass filters and and then all the all the <laughs> modulation demodulation happened inside of the sixty eight oh one. Uh, it was generating all the waveforms and interpreting them and, and, and all that. And uh, so I just got more and more into it. And to just put it in perspective, the 6801 was had two kilobytes of ROM, had 128 bytes of RAM, and it was running at like a megahertz. So you can almost toggle that by hand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's it's like a 10 cent pick. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's 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 uh, it was pretty bare bones, but. Um, but that's I had real for a, a crude SDR. <laughs> but software defined radio for those of you not in the know. But but that that little that little thing was running around like crazy, encoding and decoding the 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 signals that came into it were like twelve hundred hertz uh, signals for the uh, for the modem. So it was continually being interrupted to to find the edges on that signal and, and decode it into the ones and zeros, and it also had to do not only. 300 bits per second modem, but it also had to do the 56 per uh, bit per second Bado code for deaf people, because Bell Labs had this uh, Bell system was prevented from working in the data terminal equipment market by you know by law, so they were trying to get their you know nose underneath the tent uh, by making a terminal that was also for deaf people. So they would sell it as something that deaf people could use to communicate over the phone lines, but it would also be a data terminal. So they, they're, they're <laughs> trying to get around the back door that way, get in the back door. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's why they had the 56-bit per second, five-bit Bordeaux code in there, which was you know, just kind of glommed on there. And when you've only got 2K of ROM to stick things in, that was kind of a, kind of pushing it to, to get that in there. And I said, you know, it's, it's really, you know, we're really close on the memory here, you know, and, and this Bordeaux code thing is taking up a lot of space. I said, well, well, maybe we'll just get rid of it. <laughs> you know, get rid of the main reason why we could even put it out in the market in the first place. But, well, <laughs> you know, they said essentially we're going to get into the data term market anyway when the consent decrees and everything come down. But uh, but right now we got to leave it in there. But that's that's kind of like how I got introduced into into program, which was you know just be thrown into it. And I mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about at all about you know how to program other than doing some Fortran programs in school, which is a completely different thing than microcontroller programming in real time. And so I got books out of the company library and I'd sit there and I would study those things. And I would just sit there for hours every day, writing out page after page after page of here's how the program would be structured. This is where, you know, not flowcharts, but some notation that I found in one of the books that involves these tremendous braces. I've never seen anybody ever use this technique before or since, but I found a book and I said, this <laughs> makes sense to me. And I started doing it, but I would have just dozens and dozens of pages written out. And my boss would come by every now and then he'd look in at me. And finally, after a couple of weeks, he walked in and he says, are you going to be writing any code? And I said, <laughs> and I said, well, I'm, planning on it <laughs> give me another week or two it's not a big deal you know but yeah i mean was it like a structurized pseudocode yeah it was stru- yeah and essentially every if statement 
divided into two branches that was so the if statement would come into the place in the brace that was in the middle and then you'd draw the brace you know the legs of the brace up and down and then the 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 yes statement would be up at the top and the no statement would be on be down at the bottom and then you keep branching out from there uh so it took you know really big pieces of paper to get anything done but it at the time it made a lot of sense to me to, to structure it like that whereas the flow charts were a lot harder to draw this was pretty easy for me to uh, to handle and to and to modify but you know you had to have something to guide you as you were doing it because you know you like i said you've only got 2k of of rom and and everybody's just throwing things in at you you know all the time saying can i do this can i do that and you don't you know i didn't have the experience to say yeah i could or i couldn't I just had to kind of figure out a way to get it in there. And, uh, you know, so you really. There's no example code at the time for you to use. Uh, or exa- you, know, you know, not. App notes or whatever. Yeah, not that much. But, you know, and, and when you've got, you know, very experienced people on the hardware side and software was a complete unknown at this time. Uh, the very first, uh, the very first microcontroller based design before this one had been done like a year or two before. And that was with a TMS4, which was like a 4-bit TI microprocessor that that really only had, uh, you know, only had to run this little um, telephone memory that would uh, that would recall numbers for you and dial them for you instead of having to, having to dial them manually. So there wasn't a lot of software experience around there. And uh, so it was really kind of learning as you go and, and not having the, uh, the expertise to be able to tell people whether it was or was not possible to do something. You know, you tended to get overrun in meetings and everything would get thrown in on the microcontroller because there was no way for you to defend that. You couldn't actually <laughs> do that until you actually had the experience to tell you that that wouldn't work. And I got but into you became one, the guru. Oh yeah. I got into one section of the code, you know, as we got down the line where, I was trying to uh, decode the telephone ring signal that would come into the uh, into the uh, terminal, and uh, it had you know has a very long duty cycle, a, a very long it's, it's a you know it's ding 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 ding. So you got to be able to figure out if it's ringing and when it's not ringing. And I said this long time constant between these ringing pulses is really you know just driving me nuts because it's like orders of magnitude longer than anything else the program has to do and it's got these you know this really odd timing loop in there it would really be a help for me if on the ringing signal if you could just put a big capacitor on that ring signal so it would go you know it would just turn on and off as the rings came in instead of me having to decode each and every little ding 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 and they you know I finally made the point, you know, finally got the point across to him that it was not worth a hundred bytes of code for, uh, you know, three cent capacitor that they could put in there that we could, we yeah. could use a hundred bytes <laughs> for something else. And it, all this sampling of the signals and stuff that you're talking about, this is before, you know, the age of the Arduino where there's PWMs and ADCs and, you know, everything's integrated on chip. You had to interface to all this separately, correct? Pretty much, except that the Motorola 6801 had this really good timer control unit and that's what i use to uh generate the uh 1200 hertz uh, signals and modulate those and also what i use to de- decode them when they came into the processor 
but it only had one of those things. And so I couldn't use that for anything else. Plus it just ran too fast for these really, uh, slow level, these really slow signals. So I just, mm-hmm. uh, I, I had to use it for the modem because that's where we were saving all the money and I couldn't use it on something like a ring signal. And, gotcha. you know, but yeah, we had, there was some, some hardware help out there, but, uh, you did, you didn't have anywhere near the peripherals that you have now. Good stuff. So, so did it take off? Did computers eventually become the next big thing? I heard that happened. Um, huh. I wonder if I'll use one one day. <laughs> I, I, I've heard that they're really small now. Really? Can you can you like the size of the desk or can you fit them in your pocket? I've, I've heard that they actually include them with magazines now. That's just ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you get the cost down that much. No to our listeners, we are all recording on craze. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if you – you hadn't been working on uh, the 6801. The contemporaries in your digital class would have been working on, what, 74 series modules? Mm-hmm. Right. And so, I mean, you would have been building devices using just networks of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean... The uh, 74 series uh, logic, that was the individual logic gates and flip-flops. Right. The, the like AND bones. gates, OR yeah. gates. You know, you, you'd get anywhere, anywhere what they call the... Uh, the small scale integration SSI, which were the AND gates, OR gates, the flip flops, and then you'd have medium scale integration, which was uh, some shift registers, some some counters like eight bit counters and things like that. And then you had the VLSI, the very large scale integration, which was the, the specialty chips that uh, you know, like a uh, an actual microprocessor itself was a VLSI chip. Yeah, so you're quite literally bit banging every function, doing it by hand, and you know, not just dropping in some example code. Right. And, uh, you know, you were very concerned back then. This in the, When I graduated, it was 78. So that was the point in time when we were just starting to see microcontrollers become more prevalent. We were just starting to see um, some of the early programmable um, logic chips become available. And uh, that was when 7400 TTL started to have its, you know, that that was probably its peak. And then from there on, it started to, to wind down because people could get more functionality uh, in these other chips than they could in the, with the TTL stuff. So, the example code was example circuits at that time. Right. <laughs> I mean, we, you know, you had, a, you had example circuits from the, uh, from the, um, paper, um, applications, uh, manuals. And, uh, you know, you had the old Texas Instruments, uh, TTL design, um, uh, design catalog, um, that you could get, you know, that you could go through and pick out what logic gates you could use. And uh, lots and lots of, of paper um, application manuals that, that salespeople would haul around in the back of their cars <laughs> and they would hand out to you when they came in to visit the lab or whatever. And then you had uh, – uh, if you wanted microcontroller code, you could find it in some places like uh, some of the magazines that were coming out at the time like uh, Dr. Dobbs and, and places like that. Uh, the Commodore 64 had a ma- – had a uh, – had a, uh, a – a magazine that you could, you know, you could, you could type in, uh, uh, the, uh, assembly code for programs and run those and store them on cartridge tapes and things like that and play them back. But, uh, really most, uh, most of it, you just had to kind of do on your own and, and read books and kind of figure out what was happening. So, so after you did all this stuff by hand and you became the Bell Labs, you know, digital design guru, 
Uh, <laughs> did that make you want to go back and start teaching, or you know, what was the uh, career? No, career it made shift me want to go back and what made me want to go back and start teaching was my job went to hell. <laughs> um, I I mean the as often happens in large companies, especially at that time, I, I worked in a lab that eventually grew to like 500 people. And it was the, one of the Indianapolis, it was in Indianapolis. It was a branch lab there. And I think that in the amount of time, I think I've told this story before, but in the, in the four years I spent there, I think I heard of two projects that actually went to become actual products. So everything else, you know, start it, start on it, work for, on it for a couple of years, kill it. Start on it, work for on it for a year, kill it, and that's what happened to the the terminal project we were working on. We worked on it for two years and we're ready to go, and then eventually got killed. And I think, in, for the most part, that it was just that the people that were managing these things just got bored with it. You know, <laughs> and they said, "Well, we've been working on this for a while," and the the one of, one of the ways to advance there within the Bell system was to propose a big idea get that big idea rolling and then get the hell away from it before it actually produce anything. <laughs> uh, that's disheartening and, and, for the workers too. It can't be good for morale. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, you know, it was, it was always, you know, your project's going to be canceled. Here's another project you'll work on. So after the, the terminal thing got canceled, they didn't know what quite what the hell to do with me because I was, now I was this microcontroller programmer and there was no microcontroller to program. So they said, oh, uh, why don't you um, test these crystal oscillators to see what their temperature dependence is? So I would, you know, I, I had a temperature chamber set up in the hall and I would put crystal oscillators in there all day and I would run the temperatures up and down and record what the frequency variation was. And, you know, this is all done in a notebook. There was nothing sampling it or anything. There was no computer sampling it. It was just me writing it down and drawing graphs out. And uh, that went on for a while. Uh, I became the number two guy in that lab for crystal oscillators, um, <laughs> which, which was, you know, I was number three for a while. But then somebody came by and said to me one day, he said, I just talked to the number two guy. and He doesn't know crap. You're number two now. <laughs> uh, did you get a badge and a raise? <laughs> Mm, yeah. <laughs> well, I got the badge. I didn't get the raise, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I took on, the, I took on the crystal officers. Like, like Jeff, I heard you say one time, uh, if you can't get out of it, get into it. Yeah. So, so, so I just got into crystal oscillators for a while. I was just, you know, reading books about them and, and drawing graphs and, you know, all this other stuff that goes on with them. And, and then that ended. Um, and then they said, Hmm, now what can we do with you? I know you can write the, uh, the test vectors for this digital logic chip that somebody else is designing. <laughs> and it was just, you know, that's where you write all the test vectors that go into the chip when it's on the jig and you send the signals in and then you see what signals come out of it and see if they're the right signals or not. So I had to go in and figure out what the right signals were that were coming out for every signal pattern that I put in and see how much coverage I could get on that chip. So, you know, you work and work and work and work and work on that. And six months after I finally handed off the test vectors for that chip to the whoever was going to manufacture it. And, you know, my boss comes by and says, oh, yeah, we changed that whole chip, uh, the whole architecture. We didn't want to tell you because we were afraid you'd stop working on the test vectors. Well, you would have had to do that anyways. <laughs> I said, 
Yeah. <laughs> and then at, then after that, I just said, well, you know, I'm, I'm getting out of here. Um, and so, you know, I got out of there eventually. Uh, but not before I started on another project, which was at the very end, which was to, for the Bell system to make their own IBM compatible PCs. And there was no way in hell that was ever going to fly. But I left before that one came crashing down. <laughs> Smart move, it sounds like. Yeah, there was there were actually about 10 groups within Bell Labs at that time, which was like 1982, that were that were trying to come up with, you know, IBM compatible PCs. And they were all fighting with each other. It was just a mess. <laughs> so then I then I got out of that and I went back to school to become a VLSI designer. And, you know, I went through the whole, you know, PhD thing and eventually became an academic. Was this in Indianapolis still, or did you move for your schooling? No, I, I, I moved, you know, I moved back down here to Raleigh and, uh, and went to school down here and uh, actually, uh, worked in, at NC State for about six or seven years as a, as an assistant professor. Nice. No, no tenure track for you. I was on the tenure track, but I left the very year they were going to, you know, figure out whether to give me tenure or not because uh, I'd really kind of lost interest in being being an academic. Uh, sure. While I was while I was there, um, that's when I when, that's when Excess got started. While I was working uh, as a professor there, uh, the fellow that I did my PhD work for had invented a uh, spreadsheet that ran on Unix workstations. And, you know, this is like late eighties, like 1988. And if you, you, you're not aware, probably because you guys are all too young, but there was no real productivity software that ran on workstations back then. It was all engineering stuff, uh, but no spreadsheets. So we had a spreadsheet that ran on a Unix workstation. So you didn't have to transfer all your budgets and everything over to a PC and do it there. You could do it right on the workstation. So we started trying to market that and formed a company and he was doing the spreadsheet engine and we had another guy that was doing the spreadsheet user interface the the motif graphics and everything like that and uh i was doing the uh the graphics and data visualization stuff like that you know pr producing the pie charts and the scatter plots and everything and the 3d charts that came off the spreadsheet and we worked on that while we were in the university for you know oh like three or four years. This is as a side project or as part of your research? Yeah. Oh, yeah. As a side, no, it was a completely a side project. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, uh, kept, uh, and we had an outside company that, that we had, uh, struck a deal with to do the marketing for the spreadsheet and get it, get it out there and get it sold. And that whole deal just never really worked out very well. And, uh, we kept doing modifications and new versions and we were up to version three after a few years. And these are major rewrites and, you know, just not making any money at all, <laughs> essentially working for minimum wage. And, uh, but, you know, I like the idea of, of having something that, that we could work on that was, you know, that we could put work into and make some money off of if we could just find a way to get it marketed. So I eventually just quit the university and decided to go out and try to do it full time. But I started a, um, kind of like a consultancy within excess that I would use, that I would do and also work on the side marketing the spreadsheet and, and, and working on some other things on that. 
But eventually we, you know, Microsoft Excel came and it just killed the market for any kind of other spreadsheet. And we had to let that die. And the other guys dropped out of the company, rightfully so. And they, they kept their academic careers going. And I just worked on the, uh, you know, my consultancy within Excess. So it became a consultancy mainly. And then I started branching off into programmable logic and uh, uh, doing circuit boards and, and tutorials and things for that. So that's really kind of where where it got started from. Interesting. It's funny how you start with one idea and it morphs into another as you know the landscape changes. Oh yeah, yeah. You just, you just never know what's going to happen. Um, I mean, we were so close with that spreadsheet. Sometimes it, it's you know you prepare and you prepare and you prepare and then it's just one little thing that comes up and it either makes you or breaks you. Uh, we had. Back then, you didn't have the internet, so all the uh, advertising for software was done through trade magazines, and there was a big trade magazine for digital equipment uh, computers, and that's one of the workstations that we ran on, and the editor for the uh, for the magazine had seen our software, and he said, you know, this is the future of software, what this thing has right here, because we had a special little tweak in the program that allowed it to interface to all sorts of different programs and pull in real-time data, things like that. He said, this is really significant right here. And he wrote two editorials over the space of about six months saying, I have seen the future, and this is the future right here. But he would never mention the name of our company. He would (laughs) (laughs) And and so nobody ever heard about it, nobody ever learned about it, and it was essentially just a big nothing for us. Wah, wah, wah. Yeah. <laughs> it, won't be, it won't be the future if you don't tell anyone about it. Yeah. I mean, he wanted the future for himself. You know, the, uh, we couldn't quite figure out why it was happening, but we think that there was some kind of interaction going on between the marketing guy, the marketing company that we had hired and, and the editor, there was some kind of, uh, I don't know, tension going on there. And he wasn't going to name the company, you know, name the company or the product because he was having some problem with our marketing company. But we never could figure out exactly why that happened. But it was, you know, like I said, everything, you know, just came down to just a little make or break thing here or there that went the wrong way. And so, you know, you have to go on, dust yourself off and go and do something else. Yeah. Yeah. As I listen, as I listen to that, Dave, I'm, I'm struck by, uh, the number of students that uh, want to come and talk about making the right decision and what's the right first job to take and should they go into this field or that field. And I, and I mm-hmm. try to explain to them that a uh, while it's not bad to plan a career path, it is really hard to know exactly how your career path is going to uh, evolve, you know, what what's going to happen. Yep. And uh, yours sounds like a, a typical career path where you just you sort of turn from thing to thing and you do the best you can with mm-hmm. with each uh, experience and situation you have, but uh, you, mm-hmm. you you could have never. I I imagine that when you graduated from college, you could have never imagined that this was the particular career path you were going to take. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I found out that the, that the uh, foreseeable future is pretty much a, you know a very short time span i mean <laughs> like a couple of seconds <laughs> because because things things change i mean and, and and little things that you never think would have any effect on you and but then when you look back you say you know that's really 
that's really what what happened you know that's really what the turning point was right there and i never noticed that mm-hmm. you know like w- when i decided to leave the university um i had a student uh named bill treat hey bill if you're out there hope things are going good <laughs> but but bill was a a, a master's student of mine mm-hmm. and uh he was working on this project that he had started himself. He had come up with the idea and he just needed somebody to kind of manage, you know, kind of manage him as he went along through the, through the master's program and, you know, sign the papers and look over what he's doing and make sure everything was going okay. Mm-hmm. And he worked for, you know, two, two and a half years on this, on this project. And you can get a master's degree just doing a coursework in like a year and a half, two years. Mm-hmm. And he was living in, what I considered to be like abject poverty. I mean, I don't even know if his house had, you know, much of much in the way of electricity or water in it. And I said to him one day, I said, Bill, you know, why don't you just, all you got to do is like take another course here and you would be done. You would have your master's degree. You would be out of there. And he said, he said, Dave, you, you just don't get it. And I said, what's there to get? He said, he said, when I leave school here, I'm going to, I'm going to have a job with the U.S. Patent Office. And all I'm going to do all day is review the things that other people have done and decide whether they're unique enough or not to either give them a, a patent or deny them a patent. And I'm never going to do anything else after this. This is the last thing I'm going to be able to design. This is the one shot that I have left. It's a very diffused <laughs> attitude to have. Well, yeah, but. But also, but, you know, you talk about things having an effect. I mean, I'm sure that is a conversation that Bill does not even remember. But, you know, that played over in my head, you know, just time and time again after he told me that, you know, because you don't know in your life when the last time is that you're going to do something. You know, but he had an idea that this was the last time he was going to be designing something. So he was going to make the most of it. And I said, When's the last time that I'm going to be able to design something? Is it now? Am I sitting in academia right now? Is this the last time I'm going to have a chance to do anything? And I said, do I want this to be the last chance that I have? And I said, you know, what I'm doing now is not what I want to do. So that's pretty much what got me out of the, out, out of academia right there. And I said, I'm going to go off with excess and I'll do whatever I can with it. And, and see if there's going to be more opportunities there because, you know, I didn't want what I saw was coming down the path towards me. But, you know, these little conversations you have that don't mean crap to anybody except, you know, to you, but they have a big, big effect. And that's where your life has a turning point. And so, yeah, like Jeff says, you can try to plan your career, but it's these little things that go on as you go along that really shunt you from one path to another yeah yeah definitely it's it's funny how things take a turn like that so do we want to talk about digital logic or what (laughs) (laughs) you still got to answer my original question that's true we don't want to leave people hanging but we you know oh about 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 uh, signal integrity okay can someone first explain the question (laughs) (laughs) well um you know it all gets it all gets down kind of the levels of abstraction like you know, we talk, we talk about digital engineer, uh, you know, digital electronics engineer. We talk about analog electronics engineer. That's, that would be you, Carmen. Oh yeah, that's me. Uh, I, I shudder when it comes to bits, but I can, I can bang it out if I have to. 
Then we have, you know, we have uh, electromagnetics, uh, you know, people, RF people. And uh, it, it's all, it all gets down to abstractions. The, the digital guy looks at signal levels and he says it's either a logic one or it's a logic zero. And he abstracts away the fact that it's actually a voltage that goes anywhere from, you know, 3.3 volts down the ground or what have you. And the analog guy is below that. He's at a lower level of, level of abstraction. He says, I know it's got a voltage. I know it's got a current. And uh, those are the important things to me. But he's also at a level of abstraction that's above what the RF guy does. The RF guy says it's all electro electromagnetic fields. It may be, you know, constrained into a wire, but it's still EM fields passing through there. And that's where the voltages and currents are coming from. So he's at another level of abstraction down from that. But even he is missing the level of abstraction from the guy that knows about relativity and quantum effects which have an effect on classical classical electromagnetics. So we all have these levels of abstraction where you can see more details if you go down, but if you go down into the details, then you're much less efficient at handling what happens on the upper level. So as a digital engineer, you wouldn't want to be down there worrying about electromagnetic fields for the most part because that's not a way to handle the problem that you're trying to solve efficiently. The question is, when does your level of, of, of abstraction break down and you have to start worrying about the lower levels? And in this case, it's when do you have to worry about signal integrity, which is uh, part analog and part electromagnetic fields problem. And uh, before, there was a talk about edge rates, and that is the determining factor on um, when you start to have to worry about signal integrity. If your logic signals are going from one to zero and zero to one, uh, in, in, uh, very quickly, regardless of how often they change. If they even, even only change once per second, but they change very fast, like a tenth of a nanosecond, then you've automatically got a signal integrity problem, even if it's only doing that change once every second. Because that change and uh, the, the change in level happens across a physical distance and at the source it may change very quickly but the destination where it's going to may be a few inches away and it hasn't changed yet you've essentially got the circuit sitting at two different levels at the same time and then that edge will propagate down the signal line and eventually reach the destination and then it's going to ring there and it's going to come bouncing back at you it's all the parasitic resistors and capacitors built into the pcb mm -hmm. and cables that you exactly. normally just neglect even as an analog guy sometimes right i, I mean for an analog guy even uh you know those things may not be of any concern to you as much as what not the wire itself but what's happening at the end of the wire where you have the load of whatever you're talking to, the load resistance, the load capacitance, and you can still, if your analog is is you know several megahertz or less, then you don't have to worry about uh, what the wire is actually doing. All I have to worry about is the load and the source. Exactly. So yeah, it's it's, but yeah, you have to. You ha it's the edge rate that determines whether you have to worry about the the signal integrity. And, uh, you know, I think it's something like, uh, you take the edge rate and you invert it. So if it's, if it's one nanosecond, 
Um, you invert it and that becomes a gigahertz. And then you've essentially got a bandwidth in your sig, in, in your system that's five times that. So you've got to worry about five gigahertz and below. So you're actually generating your signal may only be going one hertz up and down, but you're actually generating five gigahertz of energy into your circuit and. Uh, if your signals are too long, that five gigahertz, uh, if your wires are too long, that five gigahertz is going to transmit out into the world as EMI. And it's also going to be distorted by the signal pair, uh, by the, uh, wire parasitic. So it's not going to, the edge is not going to look the same where you generate it as where it's received, received at. So, um, you know, that's a, that's a very poor, um, explanation of signal integrity. But if you go to, uh, People like uh, Eric Bogatin or Howard Johnson and, and read their books, they can give you a real good understanding of it in about, you know, 100 pages. <laughs> your, your description was pretty succinct, too. I think those may actually be in the coffee table behind me right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you still gave a pretty succinct explanation there, Dave. But yeah, yeah. If you take out enough details and, and, and you know, then it's, uh, uh, then it actually will be succinct. It just won't tell you anything. Exactly. <laughs> but I think there's still enough detail there for people who might not be EEs like us. Yeah. Um, and the good thing about it nowadays is you have so many tools and so many free tools that you can use and so many resources on the, on the internet that you can read through. That you can actually pick up a lot of these, pick a lot of this stuff up in a, in a very short amount of time. To at least become an armchair expert. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, um, um, Jeff and, and, and you guys were talking, I, I think, uh, when you had Chris Gamble on a couple of shows ago about are engineers more interdisciplinary now than they used to be? Mm-hmm. And I think that they are only because it's they're capable of being more interdisciplinary now than they used to be. The tool there are so many more tools that they can use it that will get them down the road further, quicker than they used to be. That you can become like a uh, you can do some mechanical design with the programs that are available, like you know even FreeCAD, which is an open source tool. You can do mechanical design with that. And it'll handle a lot of the details for you. Whereas before, you know, like in the 60s, if you're going to be doing mechanical design on cases and things like that, you had to be a skilled craftsman and and do it, you know, know how to do everything with pencil and paper. Including the actual drafting too, not just the math. <laughs> yeah. And if you wanted to do a, a printed circuit board back then, you had to be, you know, you had to sit down all day with ruby lip and a razor and tape and, and tape it all out by hand. And there was no way for a guy to just pick that up and do that for a little while each day and, and, and actually get any real work done on that section and still keep up with it, whatever else you had to do. But uh, nowadays you can do circuit board designs and actually you know, it doesn't take you all day to do one and, and the tools are there to help you out. So I, I think uh, that we have become more interdisciplinary and I, I think that's a, a good thing. Um, what the hell were we talking about? Originally digital <laughs> design, but hey, you know, this is, this is a great tangent. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Uh, for people who do want to focus, you know, more on the digital and branch out into analog or mechanical or whatever, you know, what, what do you have to know these days? Uh, to be a digital designer and, you know, could you maybe give us where, where digital design started from and where it is today? You know, the, the 10,000 foot view. Yeah. Um, well, uh, you know, 
I kind of grew up in at least an, an er, part of that era um, where we where we used to not have digital design, and then we started to have digital design. And um, there's really back in the early days, there really was a dichotomy. You're either a digital designer or you're an analog designer, and you really uh, and, and you're or you were a programmer. And there really wasn't a lot of um, allowance for you to move back and forth between those fields. Uh, you, you know, we used to sit in pro and project meetings at Bell Labs and just point fingers at each other. It's a hardware problem. It's a software <laughs> problem, you know, and, and just go back and forth about that. And nobody was allowed to go, you know, back and forth over that boundary there and say, you know, I think that, that, uh, you know, I understand this hardware piece. And I understand the software piece and I see the problem is maybe an interaction here or there, but nobody was allowed to do that. Now we have a lot more crossing over and over and back and forth between those, uh, those areas of expertise. So it's, it's more complicated in a way to become a digital designer now because you have to be comfortable with working. Uh, in analog and had to be comfortable with working with high speed and not be an expert, but know when things are not the way that they should be for your particular area of expertise. You know, I'm a digital guy. I know when the high speed effects start to affect me and this is where I should be careful. And, and it's not digital anymore. Now it's EM stuff. And I know when the analog stuff becomes important, if I'm switching between logic families, so I know I've got to go take a look at the analog side. So it's a, a matter of knowing where your boundaries are and when you've crossed out of where you're an expert. So what do you need to know to be a digital designer nowadays? I, I think I would probably start with your books. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would not. I would not start with those. That you know, those are fpga books but that's a whole nother monster we haven't even cracked that one yet but but actually that's that's a much that's a much simpler monster in many ways than just digital design digital design is a lot broader uh and and fpjs are just a segment of that so but what if, is an fpga for those who may not know yeah well, and actually dave before you get into that could you give us kind of an overview of uh, for people that just know electronic devices, you know, what's the difference mm -hmm. between a, a microprocessor, a microcontroller, an FPGA, a DSP? Mm -hmm. There seems to be so many devices, and in fact, they're sort of all merging. We're starting to get this system on a chip. Where right. they're, they're, so for the uninitiated, can you give us kind of the uh, the big overview? Okay. The, the goofy civil engineers out there are like Adam. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Plug thing, plug wires into box. Box work. Yeah. <laughs> LED well, flash, traffic light go. <laughs> that's 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 the good part about digital is in a lot of ways it is just plug signals into a box and signals come out of the box and that's all you got to worry about. But uh, you know, we like I said, we started off with simple logic gates, uh, you know, AND gates, OR gates, inverters. Uh, put a signal in, and some very simple operation occurs upon it, and then it comes out the other end. Uh, those were wired together on boards and connected with printed wiring board traces, and that essentially was what electronic design, uh, digital design, was like back in the sixties and early seventies. What happened then was that people, you know, that was a very scary time for people because once you made a printed circuit board, that was it. You were kind of stuck with it. If you wanted to change it, you were in big, big trouble because you had to redesign the circuit board, rewire the traces. 
So what came out after that was uh, programmable um, logic arrays or programmable array logics, which are a little bit different from each other, but but pretty. Uh, but the high level view of those is you had a bunch of AND and OR gates connected together, and a big old switching matrix where the output of any gate could be routed over to the input of any other gate, and a big cross point matrix. And you all, all you had to do to design, to wire your gates together was go into that matrix and blow fuses between crossing signal lines. So if gate A wanted to talk to gate B, you'd find the place where the output of gate A crossed the input of gate B and you would, uh, make a connection there. And was this done with UV light or how was this blown? Well, in, in the early days, it was done with actual fuses. You would, uh, you would have a programmer for your chip and you would put voltages on those lines and it would, uh, actually burn the, all the fuses were, all the signals were connected together. And then you would go and burn out the ones you didn't want. Uh-huh. So, uh, that was, that was a way to do it. But what they found out with was that over time, some of those fuses would grow back together again, or sometimes they would blow the fuses up and they would spatter some contamination around and make other fuses open or close. So that's uh, when they went to things like um, UV, you know, UV light uh, erasable proms and things like that. You'd you'd have your little logic chips that would have the little quartz window on the top of them, and uh, so you could just program the program the uh, interconnections that way and then eventually they went on and, and got to uh, flash based devices so you didn't have to erase them with the uv light but essentially what those chips did was it took the wiring from your printed wiring board between your digital your discrete digital log- logic gates and it put all those discrete gates inside of a chip and gave you this reprogrammable wiring connection matrix and you could put one chip down that would take this, you know, take the place of 20 chips. And if you had, if you had a problem, <clears throat> excuse me, if you had a problem, you would go back through and reprogram that chip and not have to redo your circuit board. And the problem of software revision came up. <laughs> that's essentially, uh, that's a kind of a hardware software, um, hybrid there. Microcontrollers were a step up above that. And that you had a, instead of having the raw logic gates that you would connect one to the other, now you had a bunch of logic gates in there connected together as a microcontroller that would read from a program memory inside the chip, execute an instruction, do something, and flip its bits on its, uh, its IO bits on and off to, uh, affect the outside circuit, and then fetch another instruction and so that would be a micro microcontroller, mm-hmm. and it could function much like a programmable logic array could, only it was slower. The programmable logic array was all raw gates, which operate very quickly. Yes, you, in the microcontroller, you would have like the uh, the the arithmetic logic unit, and it would take the place of the and the raw ands and or gates, and it could do addition, subtraction whatever, and you'd rely more on registers to hold your data instead of having each signal on its own line. Exactly. But you had to cut, you had to cut the problem up into discrete steps, yeah. which are all executed one after the other. And if you were dealing with microcontrollers and, you know, in the late seventies, like I was where they would run at one megahertz, then you're going, you know, boom, 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 boom with your microcontroller. Whereas your, as your, your programmable logic array is like, 
and it's yeah, done because you know, it's speed for additional flexibility. Right, exactly. Yeah, so 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 in the PALs and PLAs, you were you were basically they were built from transistors and resistors and diodes, and you were you had a propagation delay for the signal to get through them, but there was no clock signal you had to wait on for the next thing to happen. That's uh, well, uh, the very early uh, PALs were that way. They were they didn't have any sequential elements to them. Right. But then it wasn't long after that before they also put flip flops on the outputs of the gates so that you could have registers that were clocked in. So you could then make little state machines right. where you're you would up supply clock and then the state would be stored in the flip flops and then it would circulate around through the connection matrix and go back in and calculate the next state. And then you would pop the clock and your new state would come in. And then you keep popping the clock and going from state to state to state. Right. So you could do uh, sequential state machines with the programmable logic arrays. But the fact, the thing is, it's still much quicker than a microcontroller because it's not going through. Um, the microcontroller has to fetch an instruction. Then it has to interpret the instruction. Then it has to fetch the data. Then it has to uh, combine the data. Then it has to put the result out. So the microcontroller is slower uh, because it um, it's dividing these atomic operations that the PLA is doing. It's dividing them into uh, discrete steps that have to be stepped through. And because the microcontroller is a much bigger log- logic circuit, it runs slower, and therefore, and, and you know, it's it's going to be slower. I mean, uh, programmable array logic is always going to be faster than than stored execution programming. Right, and I guess I made the distinction about the 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 gates just because. Uh, FPGAs work in a similar manner, but they use lookup tables, which operate a little differently. Right. And and um, the next step up from programmable logic arrays was to go to uh, complex progr- programmable logic devices and FPGAs. And I'm just going to lump those together as FPGAs. And with FPGAs, they got uh, the problem with with PALs or programmable array logic, I might just call them PALs because it's easier simpler to say. <laughs> but you, you know, if you had uh, ten gates, then you had to have a connection matrix uh, of a hundred cross points to go from any gate to any other gate, right? So as your number of gates went up, you know, if you had n gates, you needed to have n squared connection points to go between them. Uh, you, you know, I, I've glossed over some details there, but it's more or less, that's more or less correct. And the problem with that is that N squared connections starts to dominate the entire chip. Uh, so you're spending most of your, you know, using most of your chip area for connections and not very much for the logic gates. What they did with the FPGAs was they put, uh, little, com- little logic computational elements down in an array, uh, like, uh, like, you know, a hundred by a hundred. So you'd have a, uh, that would be 10,000 logic elements. And then between all of those logic elements at like, like city streets on a map, they would have, um, wires going back and forth, just tons and tons of wires in each channel. And if you wanted the output from one of your little logic elements in there to go to the input of another logic element, you would map a, path through those essentially city streets that that connects it from one to the other and that's done using um little programmable switch points 
So those programmable switch points are held in memory. So if you want to program the FPGA, all you do is go back through and program the switch points. It says this output connects over to this input wherever it is, and your whole um, your whole logic design becomes a matter of connecting the right switches together. Only in this case, you have a lot um, you have a lot more logic and a lot less switching points. Right, and and so FPGA stands for Field Programmable Gate Array. Right. And so what what makes it field programmable as opposed to the PALs? Okay, field programmable mean, means uh, mainly that you can program it out in the field, and you could also you could also program the PALs out in the field if uh, you know if, if you put them in sockets, and you know you could go out into a field unit you know, a unit that was out in in some customer's hands. You could pull the PALs out, put them in a program, and reprogram them if you needed to. Mm-hmm. What the FPGA brings to the to the scene is the ability to program it um, without having to remove it from the circuit. Uh, there's a little port on the FPGA where you load all the configuration bits that tell what connects to what. You load this through the, the little JTAG port or whatever type of port they put on it. And uh, you could even load that from a geographically distant location. You know, you get your internet connection going, you send your bit stream through the internet over to the unit, and then the microcontroller that might be in the unit would grab that bit stream and then load it over there into the FPGA. Mm-hmm. And you can completely reconfigure what the FPGA is doing because you've completely reconfigured how what's connected to what inside of there. Right. So, so on, a, on an FPGA... Sort of the amazing thing to me when I first got introduced to them was basically you have a lot of pins and you get to pick which are the input pins and which are the output pins and which are the logic or what's mm-hmm. the logic that controls the input to the output. I mean, it's, it's right. very flexible. Right. And uh, that flexibility is what makes, uh, again, just like with the panels, that's what makes them very attractive to system engineers in that you can throw down an FPGA on the board and you can get your connections to it, to the other pieces of your circuit. And then later on, you can determine, you know, you, you can assign the functions of, that are in that FPGA to, to the appropriate logic pins. So, um, instead of having a fixed pin out from that FPGA that you then have to account for in your circuit board, in which case some pins may be in, uh, inconvenient quote unquote places to be routed over to other places. Mm-hmm. Now, you can make convenient locations from all the other uh, pieces of circuitry on your board to the FPGA so that you need less uh, routing space and, and fewer routing layers. And then later on, you design your FPGA circuitry that goes inside the FPGA such that the outputs go to the correct pins that are connected to the external circuits. So you have you have an, uh, an increased level of flexibility because you can put your pins you can put your outputs on any pins that you want them to be on and you know we see this also in microcontrollers now microcontrollers uh now have what they call peripheral pin select where you can take the uh pwm that's in a microcontroller the output of that can be routed to any pin on the microcontroller instead of to a fixed pin so if it turns out that it's more convenient to put the output on pin number one instead of on pin number 10, you can do that. Nifty. And, and so can you give us a sense of the difference in where the FPGA would be a good fit for an application versus the microcontroller? Because we've kind of 
this discussion has kind of led us to believe that the microcontroller or the microprocessor in comparison is very slow, but very flexible. The FPGA seems to be very fast, but seems to be flexible in a different way. Uh, why, mm-hmm. why would people, uh, why isn't everything programmed with microprocessors? Why, are, why is not everything programmed with FPGAs? Or, or why is everything not programmed with FPGAs instead of microcontrollers? Yes. Okay. Uh, the good thing about microcontrollers is there's, because they're less flexible, they're actually easier to use. When you go into a micro, microcontroller, they hand you an instruction let, uh, an instruction set that says this is what the microcontroller can do. It can add these two numbers from these registers. It can, can subtract them. It has a uh, it has a PWM. It has uh, an SPI interface that it can use. It has a UART on board. Blah blah blah. You have essentially got like a partially baked cake. And all you've got to do is put the icing on it. In this case, the icing is software. And, uh, and, and if you have an application that the microcontroller can run fast enough to uh, perform all the functions that need to be fun- done, then a microcontroller is usually a very good, uh, a very good implementation for that. For one, for one main reason is that microcontrollers use much less current, much less power to do their operations than FPGAs do. Microcontrollers have very low, uh, you know, sleep currents that they, they can put themselves in a sleep mode that run less than a microamp and, uh, they can last on batteries for a very long time. Mm-hmm. What you get with the FPGA is you've got the ultimate in flexibility. If you wanted to make a microcontroller, you can build it within the FPGA just by wiring the gates together. You can make an entire microcontroller within the FPGA and have it act just like a microcontroller. Mm-hmm. And it could be a microcontroller that you could reprogram on the fly in terms of what kinds of operations it could perform, how wide its ALU is, uh, how wide its memory is, and so on and so forth. That alt- that ability is also th- that lack of constraint can be intimidating because now you got to figure out where do I start? You know, should I make, uh, should I make my, my circuit, uh, a microcontroller and have it operate slowly and, and program it? Or should I do it all as raw logic gates? Or should I, should I have a microcontroller and then a little coprocessor that does something then more quickly? So you've got all these trade-offs you can make between having a micro or just having all straight logic gates that operate very fast. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason why you don't want to use an FPGA in many cases is that an FPGA is too fast for your application. If you're just dealing with human speed signals a lot of the times, the FPGA gives you all the speed that you don't need. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, you don't need an FPGA to interpret the presses on a keypad. Um, you don't need an FPGA to uh, throw, you know, some graphics up on a little menu display or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So, and you're also paying for much higher power with the FPGA. Uh, the FPGA, you know, a, a standard FPGA like FPGA from Xilinx, say one of their Spartan series, or a Cyclone from Altera, your quiescent current, that means the current that it draws just sitting there, not even doing anything, just just when you attach it to the power bus, it's drawing milliamps of current, mm-hmm. which means it will drain any kind of 
battery, any, you know, reasonably sized battery very quickly. So it's not for a handheld piece of equipment. I mean, there are some FPGA smaller ones that, that the companies make, like Lattice makes some, uh, ultra, um, uh, ultra light FPGAs that they're kind of small, but they draw only 35 microamps when they're in quiescent mode. Mm -hmm. But still, that's, you know, that's two orders of magnitude more than a microcontroller can get down to. Right. So that's a hundred times less battery time that you have with the FPJ. So when you go with the FPJ, you're going there because you need something that's fast or you need, or you need something that's very, very flexible because you don't know what your signal standards are so that you know the FPJ can change around as the signal standards change. Uh, you know, as the, as the protocols change, whereas the microcontroller may not be able to handle that. And the primary primary reason why the FPJ is such a power hog is that it needs so many gates to implement all this flexibility, whereas the microcontroller is, you know, like I said, it's like a half-made cake. It's already been set in terms of what it can do, and it can already be optimized in terms of what a circuitry does, whereas the FPJ has, for every one transistor in the micro, you've got 10 to 100 transistors in the fpga for the same thing right so so trade-off you pay for the flexibility you pay for that right and in some cases it's worth it in a lot of cases it's not right and i am i mean i have customers all the time that that call and they say you know i want to use an fpj for this and i'll listen to their problem description i'll say you know what you really, what you don't want is an FPJ for this because, <laughs> you know, you're, you're going to have to learn all these things about how to program the FPJ and all you're going to end up with is you're going to build your own crappy micro. You might as well, <laughs> you might as well go buy a crappy micro and, and avoid that, that step of it. And you'll get, you'll end up with more, you know, you'll use less power and it'll be simpler for you to get going. Yeah. Right. And have they still updated the old, uh, you know, PALs that you were talking about before the rod? Gates, you know, because you wouldn't want to use an FPA, F, uh, excuse me, FPGA as like glue logic, would you? Just to do some level shifting or whatever. Well, you know the 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 old the old um the old gals and pals and and those things. You can still buy them, and uh, they're all. I, I guess you, you you'd buy the flash alternatives for those now, but but in a lot of cases you would rather have you know instead of going with those there are are some of the small lattice devices the small lattice fpjs are are really tiny they use very little current they're relatively cheap they have a lot of logic on board there uh those are really better alternatives in many cases than than putting these big clunkers out there still i mean i can see using the big clunkers if you're in a legacy application but but i would yeah, go with yeah, maybe not those exact chips but right yeah more just but if you're, the random if, collection if you, of logic gates if you're looking for something that um is kind of like that there is a company called silego or silego or it's s-i-l-e-g-o and they make little pieces of logic that are like you know little little sections of an fpga that are one time programmable so once you program them they're fixed so you you can't go back and reprogram them later at, yeah. at least in my interpretation but they're really 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 tiny i mean you know like like um i don't know a couple of millimeters by a couple of millimeters and uh you can get uh all these 8 bit counters on them and they have 
analog functions like analog comparators and, and uh, multiplexers and things like that on. So you can build a, an entire little system out of these that will offload a lot of uh, computation uh, on your board and to a very, very small area. And uh, I've never used those, but they, they seem really interesting uh, in terms of, of what they're doing now. But, um, yeah, so you can still go with the older older devices, but uh, I think the, the newer stuff is, is probably where I'd be looking if I was starting a new design. I'd, I'd still be looking. Uh, another alternative is... Some microcontrollers now are coming with their own programmable logic built in. So you're going to, you're going to have the advantage of a microcontroller and an FPGA in one package. Um, if you look at, uh, Cypress. Cypress is doing that as well, too. Cypress has that. Uh, I mean, they have, uh, the Cypress 5, uh, um, Let's see the one of the PSOC five and PSOC four programmable. Yeah, four's got system. Bluetooth built into it. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've got the microcontroller, a bunch of peripherals, and they've got that peripheral that peripheral pin select, so you can put the output of the peripherals on any pins you want on the package. And then they include up to twenty four of these uh, digital logic elements that you can wire together in all sorts of different ways to do high speed processing. And the chips are not incredibly expensive. Uh, I think no, in onesie, yeah, onesie, twosie quantities, I think you can buy them for like seven bucks. And, and that's like, that's like one of the bigger ones. And, yeah. uh, for a comparison, one of the high end FPGAs could run you several thousand dollars. So, oh yeah, I was just looking at, some of the uh, Xilinx um, um, ultra scale FPGAs, and the cheapest one that I could find, the cheapest and smallest one I could find was twelve hundred dollars. Yeah, wow. <laughs> I mean, and that's their that's their top of the line kind of stuff right there. I mean, these are the these are the FPGAs that have up to four thousand seventeen by seventeen multipliers on them. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there. Yeah, but uh, the, the but older yeah. FPGAs still run you fifteen twenty bucks too, though. Yeah, but the the you know the Spartans and the Cyclones are they're relatively cheap. Uh, you can buy a, a Spartan uh, LX9 for like you know in the small quantities that I use, uh, you know, a couple hundred. You can buy them for like you know nine ten dollars. Uh, I'm sure that that when you get into real production quantities, then you're dealing with some some you know sub five dollars on that and they contain a lot of multipliers and a lot of logic elements and a lot of ram and and there's a lot of capability there even in those older devices i i think in a lot of ways that uh we never really wring all the performance out of out of a device that we used to because we're always getting a new device coming down the line till more small ones out yeah yeah i mean you know, you, you say, why should I go to all the effort of learning all about this particular chip and, and getting every bit of performance out of it? Because, you know, six months from now, it's going to, there's going to be another one that's going to be, you know, twice as big or, you know, going to run faster. <laughs> so, but there, if you go back to some of the older chips that are, are cheap and ubiquitous and easy to get at, there's still a lot of capability in there in something that a lot of people would, you know, they would sneer at and say, oh, that's all old tech. But there's there's a lot in those, and it's not all that expensive to get at it. There's a lot of really cheap Spartan 3As, I believe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the 3A is not a bad chip. <laughs> I was going to say, old tech hangs on forever. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, one thing I've, I've often found is uh, pretty characteristic of FPGAs is, and it's getting even more so, is uh, really high density packaging. Oh yeah, which is which is not necessarily a good thing. Yeah, I mean, um, when you're dealing with the, uh, you're mainly dealing with the BGAs now, and uh, one millimeter BGA is pretty easy. When you get down to point eight. It, it starts to get uh, more difficult to, to get your vias going on, you know, back and forth between the layers of the board. Well, this is the spacing you, in between each little ball of yeah. the BGA. Yeah. Between each ball of the BGA is 0.8. When it's 0.8 millimeters, then it gets a little bit difficult. And when it's 0.65, it's even worse. And then they have them down to 0.4 now, which is, you yeah, know. I've, I've done some 0.4 chips at work. It's a blast. Uh, Not FPGA level density, but uh, it, it's still tricky to route things. Yeah, how do I mean? How do you do that? Yeah, we're still learning. It's a it's a process. <laughs> I I saw one guy do it uh, with one of those small Kinetis uh, microcontrollers, and essentially what well he he just sidestepped the whole issue because he didn't need any vias. He just you know essentially wired some of the pins, some of the internal pins together. Uh, and then just routed those out so that oh, so, he cheated. <laughs> yeah, but uh, and, and it was a small package. You know, it was like I don't know, four by four or five by five. So there wasn't much fan out that he had to do. Yeah. So there weren't a lot of internal pins that had to come out. But uh, yeah, I can't. You know, it's really, really hard for me to see with any kind of reasonable cost PCB technology that a guy like me could get a 0.4 uh, millimeter oh, yeah, no, it's, it's, At least right now, it's out of the level of a hobbyist. You have to do things like, yeah. uh, you know, blind vias where mm. instead of drilling like in a normal PCB mm-hmm. all the way through the board, you're only going from layer one to layer four or something like right. that. Right, right. You have, you have a bigger issue too. As soon as you transition below 0.8, you're no longer drilling. You know, most manufacturers right. won't drill that. Yeah, anymore. you, right. you got to laser drill it, and that's even more yeah. expensive. And- Which is Osh Park isn't going to do that, yeah. right? <laughs> I, you can you can do the point eight uh, BGAs with uh, companies like PCB Way and um, PCB Advanced Circuits. Yeah, and PCB Cart can do it for reasonable prices, but you know, still a couple hundred bucks to get ten boards. Uh, so it's not like the ten dollars for ten boards you can get from some places but uh yeah i and, and what really determines it in many cases is the via size and the and the drill size uh i have never seen it but i would love to see some of those um drills that they use on those circuit boards they, they say that they're uh, that they're cheap to make but uh i can't even imagine some of these drills being so fine as they are they're like little tiny hairs yeah, i think we gotta get a field trip going <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> there's there's got to be some board house here near Raleigh. I know there's assembly houses, but nobody nobody yeah, makes know. PCBs that I know of. Yeah. Uh, another potential issue that I've – at least I've seen um, in some industries with uh, high verification compliance regimes, FPGAs are terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, mill and arrow and I'm pretty sure medical. Oh, yeah. Because you're required to do complex logic analysis and uh, design verification, mm-hmm. it's you know it's scary. Uh, the microprocessor, for lack of a better word, does allow you at least cheat and throw it over the wall of the software. Right. 
Right. And and then imagine that you've got an FPJ that has a micro in it. Yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> it's turtles all the way down. Uh, and, well, it, it, yeah, I remember when the Xilinx guys brought in zinc and I thought the exact same thing. Like, oh, twice the compliance. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you do get a lot. I mean, you get incredible capabilities, but when you get into a regulatory environment, you know, all that flexibility comes back to to uh, you. Essentially, you, know, you have the other side of the coin there that gets flipped over on you, and and, and it's not as nice as you thought it was going to be. Yeah, as soon as you tell the person who's you know certifying your design for a safety you know, for a safety scenario be it automotive or whatever you tell them about how flexible your design mm-hmm. is and how it can do anything mm-hmm. well how can you guarantee it isn't going to do that awesome thing right <laughs> when it isn't supposed to <laughs> <laughs> and you know how how are you going to guarantee that a uh, cosmic ray is not going to flip a bit in the configuration memory which is completely different than flipping a bit in the uh, in the processor's memory scary stuff yeah so what sort of things should a uh, a student focus on these days? You know, you said you've come up from the beginning of digital design to yeah. uh, the multi-chip complexity beast that we just discussed. Um, you know, do you still have to know the same general things or have, have, how have well, things changed over the years? I'll just run, I'll just run through the list that we have. And, and, and uh, one thing that uh, I spent a lot of time on when I was, you know, in school, logic minimization, Carnot maps, Quine McCluskey minimization, that stuff really has to go. Um, <laughs> is that just because you know you're you're plunking down an FPGA or a micro, and the logic is what it is instead of doing individual chips? Well, the, the thing is with a FPGA, the uh, the the software is going to um, do all the minimization for you, and the minimization is quite different than what we used to have to do with TTL chips and and small scale integration. In those cases, back you know in those days, you had to minimize the number of gates that you used because that was the expensive part, and wiring wiring them together wasn't expensive, but you putting those individual 7400 series chips on the board that was something you didn't want to put a lot of on you didn't want to put any more on that than you had to so you yeah. went through a lot of minimization for that when you're getting your logic into an FPGA you've got tons and tons of logic and it's and it's all um it's not like individual gates it's like little lookup tables and the minimization is not that important with those lookup tables what's important there is getting the end of it, the various computational units close to each other in that array so that they don't have to communicate over long distances. And that's something that the software does. And you don't do that. That's called technology mapping. And, and you may do that in very rare cases, but it's, uh, you know, when you're really trying to pack something into a chip, you may decide, well, this, chip, in this particular logic element will do this. This one will do that. And I'll connect them to here. You know, it's essentially like assembly language programming in an FPGA, but mostly you try to avoid that and let the software do that. That's logic minimization techniques are important for somebody that's designing that software, for somebody that's going to be doing research in that particular area, but it's not really important anymore for the standard engineer. And it has no, no, um, use at all, I, I think, for a microcontroller programmer. Uh, what is useful for both of the, both of those guys is learning how to think in parallel, learning how to uh, see how the how the how the digital circuits how they pass their signals around and, and get uh, the idea of event based um, 
event-based simulation and how events transfer themselves down down wires essentially a, a digital circuit is just a big a big event simulator and it all happens in parallel unless you make it not happen in parallel which is a, another thing that has to be learned when you're an FPGA or a digital logic designer Everything's happening in parallel, and you have to learn sometimes how to stop that from happening. That's when you do state machine design, and that's when you have a, a logic circuit that goes from state to state to state on each clock pulses that comes through. So it goes bang, 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 instead of all running as combination of logic going. <laughs> so. The, the digital logic guys are always worried about, <clears throat> about, um, running in parallel and also how do I keep it all from happening at the same time? If you're a microcontroller guy, uh, and what I just said there, that relates back to state machine design, which is another thing that you have to, as a digital designer, know how to do. That's essentially serializing the parallel. If you're a microcontroller guy, you have the opposite problem. You've got a microcontroller that does things one thing at a time every clock cycle, but you have to make it look to the user like everything's happening at once. You know, I can press a button, I can see the display change, uh, I can be, you know, doing multiple things with a with a you know a, a, a cell phone, but it all looks like it's happening at the same time. It's not. Uh, you know, press a button here and then wait while it processes that. And then I can press a button over here. In that case, you're trying to parallelize the serial. And that means that you're dealing with a lot of, a lot of interrupt routines and a lot of real time processing and trying to make it all look like it's happening at the same time, even though there's only one processor there. Is that also knowing like your microcontroller really well? Like, you know, hey, while well, I'm doing this bit of computing over here, these peripherals aren't doing anything. So if I need them to, I can activate them at the mm -hmm. same time. Yeah, that, that, that's essentially getting, uh, that's essentially like, uh, when I talked about technology ma or technology mapping for an FPGA, yeah. finding out what logic circuits go into what partic particular cells to make it work you're essentially doing like a technology mapping for a microcontroller. You're deciding what functions have to be assigned to what particular units in the processor. It's a, it's the units are bigger. Uh, the yeah. computational units are bigger, but you still partitioning your function up in between those. You say, I need the speed of the SPI or the UART interface over here. Uh, and then the slower things maybe are handled in software inside of the processor core itself. So essentially you're, you're, uh, parallelizing the serial again, but you're also making use of some higher speed parallel units that are running in addition to the microcontroller. And that also gets back over to multi-core programming. Now that we have microcontrollers and, uh, microprocessors that have multiple cores in them that can be running in parallel, then you still have that shifting of, functionality between the processors that you have to be concerned about and again that's another like that's another technology mapping problem and uh let's see let me go through a couple more things on the list um the digital designer and the microcontroller designer have to be concerned about logical signal interfacing and this is more of your analog 
type of stuff. You have to know what kinds of signal levels are going in the various logic families, how they have different signal levels and how to translate between those, how to handle timing issues between those, and then signal integrity, uh, you know, um, how to handle high-speed edges and things like that. You don't have to become a electromagnetic guru to handle this. You can learn rules of thumb, but you also have to know when those rules of thumb run out of gas and don't really apply anymore. And, you know, for instance, um, on some really, really high-speed signal circuit boards, it's the permeability of the circuit board actually changes in these minute steps because the glass weave inside the circuit board uh you know has it has um a pattern in it so when you're when your signal line goes over one of those glass threads the permeability of the circuit board changes and then when it goes over one of the more epoxy areas this permeability changes again so you've got all these different uh um um characteristic impedance impedances that it goes through which becomes a problem when you're at 40 gigahertz, but you don't have to worry about it when you're at one gigahertz. Thankfully, I've never had to run into that one yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, you know, you have to understand, you know, you have to understand and maybe it involves getting bitten by it, but you have to understand when your rules of thumbs run out of gas. And, and that's, you know, one of the things you have to learn. Um, Another thing you have to learn, you, you know, learn your hardware description languages and your high-level system languages. Learn your Verilog or VHDL. I don't care which one you learn because you can easily transition to the other. The most important thing to learn is the simulation model that's going on underneath in that hardware language, that kind of event-driven simulation that's going on. And for your high-level languages, you know, learn your C, learn your C++, blah, blah, blah. Um Learn, you know, learn something. We've far gone past the age when I grew up where you were either a microcontroller programmer or you're a hardware designer and the hardware designer didn't know any programming languages at all and was adamant about not ever learning any of them. Uh, you know, you can't get away with that and you haven't been able to get away with that for at least 15 or 20 years. So learn your C and your C++ or whatever. Uh, Learn a little bit of assembly, learn enough to read your assembly, but you know, you're going to do very little writing of assembly, but you'll do a, a bit more reading of assembly, especially trying to figure out what your compiler is doing. So know how to read it. If you, even if you can't write it and you know, the days are gone when I used to know all the 6502, uh, instructions by heart, you know, and I could just write them out by hand. Uh, <laughs> it's not really necessary to be able to do that anymore. And um, let's see, my, my last thing here. Learn about microcontroller architectures and how they're organized, especially to learn what the bus protocols are. Like, I guess the main bus protocol to know about now is the advanced microcontroller bus architecture that's used by ARM microcontrollers. And since ARM is pretty much the only other architecture out there other than the Intel architecture in terms of, of breadth, you still have you know, MIPS and, you know, you have your microchip uh, pick architectures and things like that running around. But learn learn your bus protocols and learn the various memory hierarchies you can have. You know, your cache, your registers, your your uh, DDR, your DDR2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, um, all the different types of memory you can have because you'll be spending a lot of time with those. And I think I've run through my list about things you should know. And, you know, <laughs> it sounds like a lot. It is a lot. And you, but you, 
you know, if you wanted to get started, it's pick up a pick up an Arduino and a and a and an easy book and just you know start with that and it will lead you on to these other places. You know, don't try to swallow this entire thing at once because oh, yeah, you'll, you'll never be able to do it. You'll be spinning your wheels trying to get anything working. Oh now. yeah, yeah. If, if I had been in college and you had told me this was you know this is all that I had to learn, I would say you know. Back to physics. <laughs> yeah, you, you could specialize in any one of those areas if you really oh, yeah. devoted yourself oh, yeah. to it. But you really want to, you know, if you're just a workaday engineer, you really want, in this area, you want to have some breadth. You want to be able to talk intelligently with the, you know, with the programmer. You want to be able to talk intelligently with the hardware guy. You want to be able to talk intelligently with the analog guy. You know, you don't necessarily have to, you know, be able to best them at every argument, but you need to be able to understand what the arguments are. Right. And uh, Dave, uh, we should we should probably be thinking about wrapping this up. But before we let you go, uh, one of the things that I hear about are, are DSPs, digital signal processors. Okay. Yeah. Where, where does that fall into the big matrix of things? That's like a that's like a micro <clears throat> that's like a microcontroller with a supercharger on it. Okay. Um, it essentially, what you've done is a microcontroller uh in, in many or at least they used to be organized with a single memory bus they would fetch an instruction then they would fetch some operands to operate upon over the same memory bus what dsps did was they uh implemented a harvard architecture whereas they had separate instruction and data buses so they could be fetching instructions and also fetching operands at the same time Mm-hmm. Which allowed them to process things more quickly. Plus, you would have a uh, a big hardware multiplier um, uh, instead of doing it in micro in microcode or in, in instructions. Your multiplication happened uh, within a hardware multiplier in a single cycle. Uh, the first one of those I saw was back in like 1983, which was the old uh, TMS320 signal processors that had single cycle multipliers in there. They're a lot more common now, so there's a lot more ability to do signal processor type things on standard micros. But the main thing that you have is the multiplier and uh, an accumulator that goes with it, a wide accumulator for accumulating um, sums of products. And so the, the DSP is more or less, um, optimized for doing those sums of products, things like for, uh, FIR filters and, and things like that. But, okay. but, you know, you, you can, you can use a DSP kind of like a microcontroller if you want to. And in fact, uh, uh, you know, that happens a lot. And you can use a micro as a DSP if, if it's not having to handle really fast signals. Okay. And so what kind of, uh, you mentioned the filters, are there any specific applications where, you know, you say this is definitely a DSP application instead of a micro application? Mm, I mean, uh, anything where, uh, anything where you would, where you're mainly just processing signals, suppose you had like, you know, 96 analog channels coming in that you wanted to uh that you wanted to process and send back out you know remove noise uh you know bandwidth limit things like that you know that's definitely where you're looking at uh, a dsp um anything that uh is event you know essentially handling handling control type logic um you know if then else kind kind of things right. that's where microcontrollers tend to um um 
be more applicable. Uh, the DSP will, in, in many cases, have a deeper pipeline. So it's really made uh, to handle a lot of the same kinds of instructions you know, coming along very rapidly and not shifting its instruction stream uh, from one place to another with if then else that that kind of destroys the pipeline. Mm-hmm. But if you can do a lot of multiplications and additions in a row, that's where a DSP really tends to shine. Okay, and, and do DSPs and FPGAs ever cross paths? Oh yeah, all I mean, uh, a lot of people will use an FPGA as a DSP. Uh, okay. That that was. Uh, in a lot of the uh, later FPGA architectures, starting from the uh, like the late '90s, they started incorporating hardware-based multipliers in the FPGAs. In, in fact, you know, till you got to the point now where you had these large FPGAs that have up to four thousand multipliers in them, and they're not just multipliers; they're actually multiplier um, accumulator blocks that are made specifically to do fp uh dsp type operations and you'll find a lot of you know the main application for those is uh or at least one of them is being used in cell station uh, cell phone base station towers to process all the signals that go through there Hmm. well i appreciate the clarification exactly where these all sit relative to one another you you hear the you hear the terms and uh, you try to read up on them and the the manufacturers at least are so busy uh, promoting their latest technology that it's a little difficult to get a, a sense of the big picture. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, analog devices is a, a big place for the DSP, uh, at least the ones that I've, you know, known about in the past, like their shark uh, chips and things like that. So when you go to analog devices, you'll hear a lot about DSPs. And when TI is, is big in DSPs, or at least, uh, yeah, they, the TMS family is gone, but uh, the TMS 320, but yeah, they're still big into DSPs. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, that's a problem with a lot of the, a lot of the, you know, technologies, the, the terms that spring up that tend to, that they tend to segregate everything into these classifications that aren't really that far separated from each other. They just, they sound like they are, but they're not. <laughs> right. Right. Anything else, guys? I think that pretty much well covered it. I think we went off on a lot of good tangents, gave a lot of good advice, <laughs> had a few laughs. Hmm. <laughs> Not as much laughs as we would have had if I had, you know, come out with another butt crack joke. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> Guess we got to keep recording here for another few hours so we come up with something good. <laughs> but uh, Dave, uh, anything you want to plug uh, before we sign off here? Any contact info you'd like the listeners to have? If they want to get in touch with you to hear more about digital design? Well, uh, I have my, uh, my website, www.xess.com. That's X-Ray Edward Sam Sam. And I have a blog out there that I write, write on every now and then. I, uh, also have a Twitter handle, D-E-V-B is me, D-E-V-B-I-S-M-E. And, uh, you can contact me that way, uh, or through the contact form on the website. And, uh, I'm always interested in hearing what other people are working on and, uh, and, you know, sometimes I can even help you figure out how to do it. Not always, sometimes. (laughs) There you go. You know, even a blind squirrel could find a nut. (laughs) Especially in the city of Oaks. Ah, yeah. (laughs) Bad, bad joke to end the podcast on. (laughs) (laughs) Let's play the Seinfeld baseline to get us out of here. (laughs) But don't bump. Alright, Dave, well, we appreciate you coming on. Spending really, some time th- talking thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. 
All right. Wonderful conversation, Dave. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much, Dave. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our musical introduction is by John Trimble and our concluding theme by Paul Stevenson.